So before Greg read the gospel, I said, you know, as you listen, see if you can come up with three questions or maybe just observations about the text. So let's do that. I don't know what you came up with. Here are three things that I guessed maybe you would come up with. We'll see how accurate my guesses may be. There's a lot going on in that passage, by the way. And I should say about John's gospel that Martin Luther, who was an amazing uh, student of scripture, uh, both objectively and subjectively, I think, in other words, with both his head and his heart, he knew it really, really well. Uh, he said of John's gospel that it's shallow enough for a baby to bathe in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in, which I, I love those images, and I think he understood that it's a gospel where there's a lot of stuff kind of going on on the surface, and then there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that. It's all valuable things. Let's see where your questions or mine ended. So the first thing I thought maybe you would notice is the very first thing John the Baptist says in the gospel lesson, which is, pointing to Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what actually does that all mean? You, you know um, that this was written in a Jewish world where animal sacrifice was still used as a way of atoning for people's sins before God. And the most favored animal at all was a uh, blemishless, on the outside, uh, lamb. And so when uh, John the Baptist gives that title to Jesus, he's saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's this very clear sense that everything in this gospel is going to point to Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's very important to John's gospel. The, the gospel we're reading this year, Matthew, however, has, has none of that. Uh, Matthew's gospel's focus uh, in Jesus' ministry is totally on how we uh, seek out and, and love our neighbors, particularly those in human need. That's, that's Matthew's gospel's total focus. And I think part of the, the, the blessing of the Bible is that it realizes that at different times in life we need to hear different things. Every once in a while we need John's gospel and the reminder that Jesus' love for us is sacrificial and, and unconditional and amazingly generous. But every once in a while, we need to hear the part of Jesus that we encounter this year in Matthew's gospel, who's kind of demanding of us and says, if you don't notice and take the time to notice and make the effort to notice uh, the needs of the people around you in the world, you, you'll never do anything. And you will fall so far short of who my people can be. And so I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need some grace. Maybe you need some challenge. Maybe you need both. Those are the things that we pray about and work on. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was the first thing I was thinking maybe you'd notice. The next thing I thought maybe you would notice is that not once but twice John the Baptist says of Jesus, I myself did not know him. Now that's an interesting thing because we just got through the Christmas season where we know in, in Luke's gospel, Mary, when she finds out she's pregnant, goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. We don't know exactly how they were related, but they're relatives. And, and, and so, uh, and Elizabeth is the mom of John the Baptist. So we know before these guys are born, they know each other. We know that they know each other in their growing up years. And so how can John the Baptist say, I myself did not know him? Well, I think that's in there not once but twice because John's gospel, written 
two generations after Jesus and John the Baptist, is acutely aware that there were divisions within the early Christian community, including between people who had been disciples of John the Baptist and those who were disciples of Jesus, because their viewpoints were very different. John the Baptist, remember, was like, repent or you're going to burn. Fire and brimstone, Jesus was grace and eating together with sinners and tax collectors. You, you can't uh, save, the, save the world if you don't hang out uh, with the sinners who are a part of it. And, and so we know from the other Gospels that, that John was confused by Jesus and even wondered if he was the Messiah. And you, you feel that in his question or in his statement, I myself did not know him. Isn't it interesting then that even though John the Baptist has his doubts, he still points others to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, do you think you could do that? Do you think you could have doubts about somebody and, and yet down deep still trust something within your, your, your spiritual DNA that says that person thinks differently than I do? I'm not sure I even agree with it, but, but they're special. There's, there's something about God that's, that's in them and to still point others in their direction. It's actually an amazing uh, witness by John the Baptist. I myself did not know him. Nevertheless, I point the way. And then the last thing, uh, you know, and again, remember this is my list, and I don't know how it lines up with your list, but I'm, I'm really interested by the whole role of the disciple Andrew in this story. He's the last kind of section. Now, he's super important in this story because he's introduced as one of those disciples of John the Baptist. But when John points to Jesus, Andrew takes off. He does not hesitate the way John the Baptist does. He goes, and he starts following Jesus. But before he even does that, what does he do? He goes and finds his brother, Peter, and he says, Hey, bro, you got to come check this out. At least that's how uh, I've decided to verbalize it on your screen there for a little bit. And, and Peter follows, and Peter, of course, becomes the rock, uh, the one on how so much of Jesus' ministry is based. And Andrew, we don't hear that much more about. He kind of fades into the background in comparison to his, to his brother, but, but Peter never gets there if, if Andrew doesn't invite him <clears throat> in the first place. Hmm. So think about that for a little bit. Think how important it is <clears throat> to invite other people. Uh, to be a part of your life, uh, to help you sometimes, um, to invite yourself to, to help them or just to fellowship with them. Uh, we're so kind of, I think, passive and polite in our lives, and, and, and we don't invite ourselves in to each other's lives, and we stay away from that. And obviously there's, there's a lot that can go wrong with that. We make a lot of human mistakes on those things. But, but when in doubt, invite. Invite people to church. Invite people back to church. And, and invite yourself to, to go to a different level of what we do here, uh, rather than kind of being an observer on the outskirts. Andrew was an inviter, and we have Peter as a result. What an amazing witness. So that's, that's kind of a Bible study for today. And then, then I was trying to think, how do, you, how do you crystallize all of that stuff? Because I think it's really important to be aware of all these dynamics in, in John's gospel and, and in the whole Bible, kind of stuff that's on the surface and stuff that's underneath. I, I, I always am very sympathetic to the fact that it's, it's hard to kind of study scripture and apply it to your lives because uh, over the course of history, um, 
So many churches and pastors and priests have taught so many different things, frequently almost the exact opposite things. And, and so I think that breeds kind of a, well, how am I going to figure it out, or even kind of a cynicism about all of it. Uh, but it's so life-giving. It's life-giving because when we read the Bible and see things in there that, that are just wrong, and some things are, think of all the writings about slavery, um, there's wisdom there. Like, you don't have to keep repeating those mistakes. But then there are other times you read it and it lifts us to our highest ideals. Uh, when you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, you, you just immediately recognize there's truth. Everything about that story is truth. And, and it leads us to our better selves. This is what we gain by being immersed in it. Um, but we, we have to recognize it's at a lot of different levels and we have to kind of be willing to work at it and like John the Baptist, sometimes be surprised, even taken aback at how it, how it challenges our presuppositions and our past practices. So I know, how, what story would kind of convey all of that? I don't know if this one does, but this is what came to mind. So I was reading the paper this week and read this little news item that uh, French art officials have determined that they're going to reduce the number of people who can visit the Louvre, the, the, maybe the best-known art museum in the world in Paris. Uh, the number of visitors is being reduced from 75,000 to 50,000 people a day so that visitors have a better visitor experience, to which I would just say, duh. And the reason I say that is because, you know, back in November, I mentioned that Barb and I went to Europe this past summer to visit our son David, who was living there at the time. And the place we started was Paris. And so we do all the, we do all the touristy stuff in Paris and, and loved it. Uh, what, a, what a great city. What cool things to go to, except for the Louvre, which was insane. It was so insanely overcrowded. It was almost comical. It was a terrible visitor experience. I'm not sure that even cutting it down to 50,000 is going to solve all that, but it's a step in the right direction. So one of the reasons all these people are at the Louvre is because the Mona Lisa hangs there, right? And... Um, uh, the, the room in which the Mona Lisa hangs is kind of interesting. Huge room, really high ceilings, maybe 30, 40 feet high. And the room itself is maybe 100 and, I don't know, 20, 150 feet long. There are these two, uh, in a sense, kind of temporary walls at each end. There are these aisles that go to the outside. But then these walls in the middle, on one of which hangs, so probably a 20 by 30 foot wall, on which hangs the Mona Lisa, just the Mona Lisa kind of two feet by three feet on this enormous wall. And there's this, this queue in front of it, which probably has like four to 500 people in it at a time. So you can either wait in the queue so that you can look at the Mona Lisa straight on from about 10 feet away, or you can just walk down those aisles and you're not straight on, but you're still within like 15 or 20 feet. So we decided we're not, we're not waiting an hour to, to see this. And we walked down the side aisles and, and looked from 20 feet away. And I'm a little jaded about some of these things, but I got to say it was kind of awesome. Uh, it was worth it. It almost would have been worth waiting in line. And the thing about it is her eyes. Uh, I don't know what Leonardo was doing when he created those, but uh, they are amazing. What was she looking at? That's one of the great questions of art history. No one will ever know the answer, I suspect. However, we do know the answer to what is she looking at? In other words, she's looking at the opposite wall, right? And there's only, there's a single piece of art on the opposite wall, except it's not this little piece of art. It's a 21 by 30 foot canvas uh, art in a huge frame. 
And who's, who, if you've been there, do you know what it is? What's hanging opposite the Mona Lisa at the Louvre? The answer is uh, Paolo, oh, I'm forgetting his last name, Paolo somebody, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, um, you know, contemporary, uh, who paints a depiction of the wedding at Cana. It's on your screen right now. And <laughs> I, spent a, I spent more time looking at that, I think, than I did at the Mona Lisa, because uh, you, could, you could walk right up to that. And the thing is, it's, it's kind of this uh, interesting disconnect. Maybe, maybe the feeling that John the Baptist had looking at, at Jesus. In other words, it's this depiction of the wedding at Cana, a first century AD rural Galilean Jewish village. And, and yet the way it's depicted is 16th century, late medieval, uh, Renaissance era, nobility, Italian setting and scene where there are all these nobility hanging out, but not just nobility. And see, that's the thing. The more you look at it, you realize objectively it's like totally wrong. It doesn't look like what the real scene looked like at all, probably. But on the other hand, there's, as far as you can tell, everybody there in the community, rich people and poor people. There are musicians and people serving the meal and, and the wine steward puzzled by this amazing wine he's tasting. And, and the servants diligently pouring the water, becoming wine. Dogs sitting underneath the table. In other words, it's at some subjective level exactly like the real thing. And of course, that's what art does. That's what music does. That's, that's what the Bible does. It, it doesn't make, at some level, any attempt to be objectively perfect. And there are, there are failures in there that we should be aware of and have no need to repeat. But subjectively, it is so aware of us when we're kind of down in the lowest parts of our lives and, and also lifting us to our highest ideals. The, the Bible's all over that and, and longs to teach us more and more about ourselves, longs to, to get us past our John the Baptist resistance and, and to, to Andrew acceptance of. There he is. Go follow him. And, and to that, remember, all Jesus said was, come and see, come check it out. I'm not going to make you do anything, but I'll invite you to an amazing life. So for the week to come, think about all those things. Um, challenge yourself maybe to be more of an inviter to yourself, if nobody else, but maybe to the people around you. And, and when you think about that, um, don't imagine that it will have little consequence. Maybe, who knows, you'll invite the next Peter. That would be amazing. And if that actually happened, it might even cause you to have a little smile on your face. Thanks to Mona Lisa for joining us and for you for being a part of the good news. Done.